Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. It is my great pleasure to welcome David French, an American attorney, journalist, and author, a fellow at the National Review Institute, and the senior editor at the Dispatch. He is also one of the most active protectors of our First Amendment rights. Welcome, David. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Before we start, I would like to ask you a question that I ask everyone that I bring on this podcast, which is what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? <laughs> most important thing that you should know that you don't. Well, uh, you know, I would say it's it's kind of hard to like pin one particular thing, but I would say the I, I would modify it like this. I would say, what is the most important thing that you should do that you often don't? And that is, I think that people of your generation need to intentionally study history. And why do I why do I say that um, when we have so much sort of knowledge at our fingertips with Google? And that is that I, I was really struck um, in the 2016 election by the sheer number of younger politically active people who had no idea about the Bill Clinton scandals of the 1990s. And those scandals loomed over that election. They were incredibly important to the 2016 election, um, arguably influenced the outcome of the 2016 election. And an awful lot of people just didn't know about them at all. And one thing that worries me particularly is that if you rely on Google, if you rely on the internet, the results have a recency bias. They're always gonna pull up. If you're looking for, if you're looking to understand background and context, they're always going to pull up the more recent information and the more recent knowledge. And that's not always the best. And so, uh, you know, one thing I've encouraged, I have uh, two kids in college. I have a, a college-age son-in-law. Um, understanding, under, getting a deeper understanding of history is so important to being able to respond to the context of our time. So that's my answer. That's a very good answer. And I think that's something that people don't think about ever, really, because it's, I mean, if it's right at your fingertips, why question it? You know, like the information yeah. is available, so you just assume that's the what you're looking for, like when you see it. That yes. makes a lot of sense. I've, I've also found that to be true. Like I will go looking for something and then I'll only find stuff that's more recently like happened that's related to the same topic and I'm like that's not what I'm looking at. it's always a problem for me but well one of the interesting things about Google and YouTube and other you know other tools is that they often give you information but information is not the same thing as expertise and to have real expertise you got to 
fit the information within its proper context or to be able to evaluate the information, you have to fit it within its proper context. And these incredibly powerful tools um, are not always good at that. And so uh, we often confuse now information. I can learn, I can get a lot of sort of raw knowledge quickly, but that doesn't confer upon anybody any real expertise. Yeah, and I feel like information, it's the understanding of information, the application of it that really is what you need to be able to develop views or to be able to develop a real understanding of something, to really know it, you know? Right. So, Oh, absolutely. Let's start with the basics. I want to ask you a few questions about First Amendment freedoms because I assume and I know that kids my age have some understanding some understandings of what they mean but sometimes it's kind of confusing because there are some specifics and so for instance what is freedom of speech and what types of speech are not protected by the first amendment yeah that's a really good question so the very first thing you have to understand about the first amendment is that it only protects you from censorship or from the government it doesn't protect you from censorship by a private entity. So, for example, you don't have a First Amendment right to post something on Facebook or to tweet something or to put something on Snapchat. That is a that is a place that is controlled by a private company. So the First Amendment only protects you from the government. Well, I shouldn't say only because the government is the biggest threat to free speech. But um, so it protects you from the government. And then. The First Amendment protects something called the freedom of speech, and and courts for a long time have tried to define what is the freedom of speech. And there are certain categories of of expression that are not protected, uh, such as you know true threats. So if if you're cornered in a dark alley and somebody says your money or your life, those are words coming out of their mouth. Um, they're speaking, but that's not free speech. It's a true threat. Uh, another example of kind of speech that is not protected is child pornography or obscenity. Those kinds of that kind of speech is not protected. Or in certain contexts in workplaces and schools, uh, truly harassing speech, such as racial harassment, sexual harassment, those are not protected. Um, but as a general rule, the the sort of the guide star of the First Amendment is that the government cannot prefer and punish, uh, it cannot prefer and elevate one form of speech and punish other speeches. There is a degree of viewpoint neutrality that is required in most circumstances where the government is permitting and where the government is um, uh, supervising speech activities, like allowing uh, permits for parades or protests or where they're providing access to public facilities for clubs to meet and things like that. There's the government has to remain neutral. So that means like an atheist group can meet, but so can a Christian group. A Muslim group can meet, but so can a Jewish group. Democrats, Republicans, you all have the same rights of access to the public square. So as a high school student, I often wonder about how or like what rights to freedom of expression I have as a student or what fellow students have. Yeah. Like, I know there have been a lot of Supreme Court cases and just court cases in general about religion in schools. So 
can students pray and discuss religion in school? And also, can the government interfere with religious practices? So, yes, you can absolutely pray. Um, so the, ba- the basic rule is, so, so let's talk about, um, let's say if your high school has clubs that meet on campus, that they, my high school back in the day, a long time ago, had one period a week, one hour a week, where people could be dismissed from class to go meet with their clubs. And we had all different kinds of clubs. And so the the high school couldn't say, yeah, you can have a, a club that's devoted to video games. You can have a club that's devoted to Republicans or Democrats. You can have a club that's devoted to environmentalism, um, animal rights, et cetera, but you cannot have a religious club. That's not the way it works. If they're going to allow uh, clubs to have viewpoints and meet on school grounds, they got to let everybody, including religious folks. Now, classroom speech is a little bit different. Um, the Supreme Court has decided a bunch of cases about speech of students on high school grounds or at, at school events, and it basically goes like this. You can say, you can speak, and you can and you can share your point of view, so long as it doesn't cause what is called a substantial disruption to the learning environment, um, creating, say, a risk of a disturbance or creating a um, in- interruption into learning. Um, so as long as it's not creating a substantial disruption, you're generally going to be able to speak. Uh, now. Uh, teachers are also sort of lords and masters of their classroom. So um, one of the definitions of substantial disruption would be interrupting instruction or stopping instruction. And so so you're going to have a lot of freedom there. Now, where you're not going to have freedom, you're not going to have freedom when the speech is school-sponsored. So in other words, if this is sort of the school speech, you're going to have to go with what the school wants you to say. There's also a, a pretty high degree of control that the school will be able to exercise over um, profane speech, um, you know, obscene, obscene, profane speech, things like that. And then also there's this kind of weird um, Supreme Court case from a few years ago that basically says if you're sort of advocating for drug use or being perceived to advocate for drug use, drug use you might be shut down. Um, and so... But as a general rule, uh, you're going to be able to express your political point of view, your religious point of view, so long as it is not a substantial disruption. That That's a good clarification. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so hopefully in a year, I will be going to college if everything goes well with like the virus and stuff, you know, who knows? Um, so I would like to ask you specifically about freedom of speech and religion on campuses. So the protests on college campuses in the 1960s for stuff like the Vietnam War and the military draft, they're pretty famous. They're very well known and they seem to be like a very reasonable, like there are a lot of people who are affected. A lot of people have views on it. So a lot of people protest it because everyone has a different view on it. What sort of things are people protesting today, students particularly? Uh, Oh, gosh, lots of things. So, you know, protesting police violence. They're protesting Donald Trump. They're protesting university policies. I mean, you name it. I mean, the, the bigger the camps you go to, 
um, or the more politically active campus you go to, you're going to just see a lot of protests. And the thing about college is that uh, after for years and years and years, colleges really tried hard to restrict speech. Uh, they passed speech codes. They tried to jam protests into something called speech zones. Um, and they just lost these cases. They, you know, I, I sued a bunch of colleges. Um, a lot of other lawyers sued a bunch of colleges, and they just lost and lost and lost in court. The colleges did. And so now colleges have really very, very, very limited ability to regulate speech on campus. Now, that doesn't mean that anything goes. So, for example, you could protest, you could be protesting police violence, say, and chanting no justice, no peace in the quad. But if you walk through your dorm at three in the morning, screaming no justice, no peace, and waking everybody up, then that would be sort of disrupting the learning environment. Or if you try to interrupt classes, that would be disrupting the learning environment. But as a general rule, you're gonna have a ton of free speech rights in theory on college campuses. The real threat to free speech on college campuses isn't official action by the administration. The real threat is there's an awful lot of peer pressure on college campuses to not, to to conform to a dominant ideological point of view. So a lot of people feel when they go to campus that they can't speak, but they actually, they actually can. They're just risking scorn and anger from their classmates. And I would say, I think it's reasonable to say that those students, the majority that peer pressure others to not say what they think or what they believe because it's against what the majority believes. They're kind of against freedom of speech on campus. They fail to see the freedom of speech, like the reason why we have freedom of speech, the value of it. Why do you think that is? And why, why don't they see that if they succeed in silencing people, then it will make it easier for everyone else to silence them? Well, you know, the thing is, uh, a lot of these folks, especially, you know, when you have a lot of um, anger and fury and over issues regarding race and sexuality and gender and religion, you're dealing with people who believe to their to the core of their being that they're right. And not only that they're right, that you're wrong and you're hurting people. And so they don't see any value in the free speech because they literally view the speech of somebody who disagrees with them on these hot button issues is not just wrong, but harmfully wrong. That it's that the speech is actually, you know, you've heard this phrase speech as violence, that it creates an emotional and physiological reaction that upsets people and hurts people. And so they don't see any value in it at all. Um, and so that's why they feel so confident in and aggressive and trying to shut it down. And, and the thing is, I don't even think that they are, in their views of free speech, necessarily a majority. They're just very loud and angry, and they use words like racist, sexist, homophobe, transphobe, you name it, to label people in a way that is scary, quite frankly. I was talking to a professor at an Ivy League school not long ago, and he told me that he's really afraid of his radical students um, and that he's afraid of what they'll do to his public reputation if he says something that makes them angry. And so in a lot of these campuses, what you'll have is a relatively small percentage of the, of the student body, because quite frankly, 
the vast majority of students are not all that political at all. But you'll have a pretty small minority of the student body who are very aggressive in attacking their uh, ideological opponents. And it kind of intimidates people. People just don't want to have to deal with it or put up with it. And so um, they believe they're right. They believe uh, their opponents are not just wrong, but harmfully wrong. And so they don't see any value in free speech. It's kind of, it's fascinating and kind of horrifying and kind of scary that even a college professor is fearful of students who could, it's kind of scary that they have that much power to influence a professor in that way. But I mean, based on what I've seen and what people say, even in my school, it's not it's not that surprising, which is kind of sad, I think. So a lot of student activists today think that America is horrible and they think it's oppressive and that it needs to be changed. But the one that they accuse, the society they accuse of being oppressive is the one that gives them the freedom to protest, that allows them to go to college, all of this stuff. Why don't they see the good side of America, of the society we live in? Well, you know, here's here's one thing also. If you're at an elite university and you are silencing your critics, um, you're in a position of power. So if you have the ability to censor people, if you have the ability to silence and intimidate people, especially when you're a student at one of these elite colleges, you're in a position of very real power. You are among the most privileged students in the entire world. So... You know, if you're a Yale student or a Harvard student, you name it. Um, and so not only are you already incredibly privileged by being a student at one of the elite universities in the entire world, and then if you have the dominant political position at that school, you are in a position of, by your age of extraordinary privilege. And so a lot of times I think people are blind to their own power and they deny sort of their own power. Um, which I think is wrong. I think that what they have to understand is if, if you are in the position to censor rather than being censored, if you're in a position to censor, you have the power in the, in the situation. Um, but, you know, I, one of the things I want to mention about free speech is one of the best arguments I've heard for free, free speech is it just begins with a real basic statement of humility. It says, look, I don't know everything. I don't know all the right answers about the complex questions of life. And what free speech does is a couple of things. One, if I'm wrong, uh, even you know about an aspect of about what I believe, not even about sort of the core of what I believe, what free speech does is it exposes me to alternative views, it exposes me to contrary facts, and it exposes me to reason and logic that can teach me to go from what's wrong to what's right. And that improves me as a human being. Everybody recognizes that. And so free speech can improve us. The other thing is if somebody says, well, wait a minute, what if I'm not wrong? What if I'm absolutely right? What is the value in free speech? And in that circumstance, it, it still does a couple of things. One, if I interact with somebody who's wrong and I'm right, I'm going to learn about their perspective. I will learn where they're coming from. I will understand their point of view, which benefits me. And then also, uh, as I defend my own views and as I defend my own perspective, I get better at it. I sharpen my own thinking about my own ideas, which also benefits me. 
Now, the challenge there is that when you are engaging with somebody who disagrees with you, especially on like the deep and big questions of life, that can often be emotional and painful. And so, um, you know, one of the things about living in a pluralistic society is we have to get used to a level of discomfort that says, I'm going to be interacting with some people who make me upset. And that's where a word that's often abused uh, called tolerance comes in. Tolerance implies there's something to tolerate. There's something that upsets us. And so we have to be tolerant enough to hear views that can upset us because by maintaining that marketplace of ideas, we continue to grow, to improve, to know more, to even understand our own, our own selves more. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very good argument for free speech. I feel like <laughs> That's that's kind of an aspect of it that a lot of people don't think about, about like the shaping of ideas and kind of how free speech not only betters, like it just betters everyone actually is that's, I feel like no one thinks about that, how it, it allows you to grow in so many different directions. So the abolitionist Frederick Douglass called free speech the great moral renovator of society and government. That, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. So kind of back to college and private colleges specifically, should administrators at private colleges and universities be allowed to restrict speech? I mean, they aren't government entity entities, but they they still are colleges, right? right? So the same way that a private homeowner would have the right to restrict what's said in their home, shouldn't private schools have the same right? Well, they do have the right. Um, so private colleges, there are all kinds of different private colleges. So you, a, a private college has to decide what is it about? Like, what, why does this college exist? What is our purpose? And so there are some colleges that their perfect purpose is very, very clear. They are, say, a religious college, and the goal of the college is to inculcate and perpetuate a particular religious point of view or, a, a, uh, or to teach a particular religious way of life. In that circumstance, the policies of the college are oriented towards the purpose of the college. And, and if the purpose of the college is, is uh, teaching a particular religious point of view, most of those colleges can be kind of restrictive. So I, I went to a, a small Christian college in Tennessee, and we had a lot of rules of behavior that were consistent with the religious beliefs of the college. And so long as all that's publicly available, and nobody has to go to that school, that's the choice of the school, and it's the choice of the student to be in that environment. Other colleges, uh, private colleges, they have a different goal. Some of them are big research universities. They are um, interna often international institutions, and in that they just are, they not only bring people from all over the world, they have, you know, they have their own programs all over the world. And I would argue if you're a college that is one of the big research institutions, one of the sort of international, uh, you, these universities of international reach, there's a strong reason for you to allow free speech in much the same way that a public university is required to, um, are required to, to permit free speech, because the purpose of the university in that circumstance is very much centered around 
the purpose of the marketplace of ideas, to have the full airing of ideas, to have the full consideration of ideas. And the, and the university itself doesn't have a particular religious point of view or particular ideology it's trying to inculcate. Now, there are some universities that do, even though they're not all that religious. Like if you are going to Oberlin College, for example, and are shocked when you get there to find out that it's pretty progressive left and social justice oriented, well, that's on you to have not known that <laughs> going in. But a lot of these universities, I think they try to have it both ways. They want to have all of the prestige and all of the diversity of a research institution, but then to have some of the, or a, much of this sort of the values in cult, the values, um, uh, the, the teaching and in, in some cases imposition of values of religious institutions. And that's a really, that's a really hard needle to thread. I think that's a really good point. That's very interesting. Like how private universities, how private universities, when they are meant just for knowledge, that they should function more in the free speech way as public ones do, but private ones with the goal of something else. I don't know. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so now I would like to talk about using the government to impose a particular cultural order. So I heard you once introduced as someone who, quote, was from the from the normative readers of The New York Times is a radical religious conservative, end quote. And yet <laughs> you are one of the most active defenders of freedom and re freedom of religion and free speech. For instance, you've been attacked for not being willing to crack down on drag queen library reading hour, <laughs> even though. I'm sure that's not an activity that you as a Christian approve of or that you would bring your children to. Right. So can you explain why you believe that it's important to not use the government to put an end to the use of public libraries and other public spaces, even for activities that you as a Christian don't necessarily approve of? Yeah, that's a that's a pretty easy answer to that. I believe that the um, words of the Declaration of Independence are true, and that is, we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then the declaration goes on to say that um, governments are instituted amongst men to secure these liberties. So the purpose of a government is, and it's not the only purpose, but a principal purpose of the government is to, to secure liberty. So the Declaration of Independence, I sort of uh, look at that as sort of like the American idea it's like the American mission statement and then the bill of rights and the civil war amendments in the constitution are like the mission statement legalized or operationalized. And, and, you know, that, and I think that there's a social compact then that comes in. So on the one hand, the goal of the government, because the government made up of human beings suffers from all the flaws that human beings have. It just can magnify them dramatically because of its monopoly on the use of force and its access to extraordinary amounts of power that it is, it is prone to make mistakes. It is prone to commit acts of injustice. And, and a check on government is the ability of a free people to rebuke the government. Um, that's why Frederick Doug Douglass called free speech the dread of tyrants. But at the same time, what are the obligations of individuals? Uh, yes, we exercise our rights, but how do we exercise them? And this is where another big, another important document from the 
the founding era comes in, and this is John Adams' letter to the Massachusetts militia. So he says that it is uh, that the Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. And and what he what he meant was not that everybody needs to belong to a particular denomination, but what he was talking about is that the role of the government is to secure liberty. The role of the people is to exercise their liberty in a virtuous fashion or for virtuous ends. And so my responsibility as a citizen and somebody who cares about the system is to defend liberty for everybody, to defend liberty for everybody. And then my role also as a citizen is to exercise my those liberties that I defend responsibly. And I disagree with Drag Queen Story Hour, but when you're talking about creating legal doctrines to block drag queens, you're talking about undermining liberty. And then I'm still free to say, I don't like Drag Queen Story Hour. I'm still free not to take my kids. I'm still free to argue my point. And I, I think that conversion is more powerful than compulsion. And I want to engage in the marketplace of ideas and I want my ideas to win. And I also think that conversion is more consequential, more powerful, more potent, um, more meaningful than compulsion. And compulsion violates that American social compact. You have described classical liberalism as, quote, the value and principles modeled by the American founding and its major founding document, the Declaration of Independence, quote, end quote. Can you tell us why you believe that classical liberalism is, in your words, quote, the best antidote to the illiberalism on the left, end quote. And I assume this illiberalism is also on the right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Illiberalism is breaking out all over. <laughs> um, look, I, I just think in this country, as diverse as it, as it is, on every measure, I mean, it's religiously diverse, it's ethnically diverse, it's geographically diverse, it's uh, politically diverse, uh, that pluralism is our only, our, pluralism is permanent in this country. And illiberalism is, is dangerous in particular in a pluralistic country, because what it means is, what illiberalism does is essentially say, one faction of government, rather than a one faction of our, our political parties, or are at both sort of extreme ends of our political parties, is forsaking and abandoning a fundamental commitment to freedom in favor of a commitment to compulsion. And if your answer to compulsion is, your illiberal, your authoritarianism is going to lose and my authoritarianism is going to win. That is a recipe for civil strife. That is a recipe for unending conflict. It's probably and often in history teaches us a recipe for violence. And so what our founders did is they took a look at a country and a lot of times we like to sort of downplay the diversity of the founding. But if you look at the colonies, all of the different, just take religion. If you look at all the different religious parts of America from Puritan New England to more Anglican Virginia to Catholic Maryland, I mean, you name it, you have all of a lot of the different combatants of theological combatants that turned into actual armed combatants in the wars of religion. And yet we knit a country together where Europe had torn itself to shreds over these religious differences. And how did we do it? How we did it through classical liberalism. We did it through creating a structure that allows each 
each viewpoint, each religious strand, each cultural strand in this country to build a home here, to have a home here, and to have a future. And George Washington, more, almost 50 times, around 50 times in his correspondence, um, used a phrase from a Old Testament uh, book called uh, Micah. And in that phrase, he talked about, and this is actually a quote quoted in the musical Hamilton, if you've seen that. Um, <laughs> yes. And I'll, I'll paraphrase it, but, and it's sort of a, a great, it's a great uh, expression of the American idea. And he says, every man shall sit under his own vine and his own fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. And so I think that that's kind of the American promise to all of these people from all of these different cultures and religions is that you can come here and you can build a home. And when we are at our best, no one will make you afraid. I think in protecting that, in protecting kind of the idea of classical liberalism, that those freedoms were kind of, that the founders wrote, they wrote them because of history, because of what they knew had happened in the past. And so I think that's kind of where it comes into play, that it's important to understand history and to know what has happened when freedoms like that have been taken away. So it's yes. very interesting. So Well, that brings us full circle to the beginning. <laughs> Understanding history helps us understand why we have the freedoms we have. So that also brings us kind of to the end. I have one final question, and hopefully it will help us end this interview on a positive note, a very positive <laughs> note. Can you tell us about the legal advances that we've made in First Amendment and religious liberty in our country in the last 35 years? Oh, you my said, You said that once that in the early 1980s, it was kind of an open question as to whether religious student groups could use classrooms in public universities to hold meetings. And so what advances have we made on those sorts of fronts? Yeah, if you go back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, it was not settled whether Christians could meet in empty classrooms. Um, it was not settled whether... Um, Oh my God. I mean, I can, uh, it was not settled whether universities could pass speech codes that restricted student speech. It was not settled whether speech could be confined into narrow speech zones. It was, I mean, I could just go through area after area after area of freedom that we take for granted. But in 40 years, um, advocates on the left and the right, justices on the left and the right have really carved out a space for free speech in this country that is arguably larger and more robust than it's ever been in the whole history of the United States. And, and just to give you one sort of measurable piece of, of progress, even going back, you know, 10, 15 years, there were about 75% of all campuses had one or more clearly unconstitutional po speech policies, uh, public campuses, about 75%. That's crazy. Now that number is down to around 25%. So Wow. The reality is, over the last 40 years, Americans have become more free from government censorship than they have ever been in their history. But at the same time, our next challenge is a lot of people don't feel as free because of social media shame campaigns or peer pressure, etc. So you have the freedom. Sometimes it just takes courage to exercise it. Thank you so much for coming today. 
Um, thank you for all you've done to make this country a more free place. You kind of make me want to go to law school just so I can it. defend the First Amendment. And if I do, if that happens, I can only really hope that I can become as good at talking about this and as effective as you are. So thank you. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for having me. This has been a blast. Yeah, of course. <laughs>